is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seatons. And I'm Rob Archer. And today for Charles Feldman. A terrible tragedy has a neighborhood in mourning in Riverside. A man who catfished a teenage girl and developed some kind of online relationship with her drove across the country from Virginia and murdered the girl's grandparents and mom before he was killed in a police shootout. We'll go in-depth into the dangers of catfishing online, what it is, and how parents can protect their kids from predators. A new study finds just about half, uh, just about all of us, I should say, have had COVID, but not everyone. So how did some people manage to avoid it for this long? And Russia is still attacking Ukraine's power grid. It's now having a big impact on hospitals there. Some are even postponing surgeries. Mauna Loa, no longer asleep. It's waking up and waking up in a big way. As it now has erupted on Hawaii's big island, we'll go in-depth with a volcano expert on what this means for the people who live in the area. Politics will be at the center of tomorrow's World Cup match, a big one between Iran and the United States. Must-win game, a social media post from the United States as Iran very upset. We're going to start with the triple murder in Riverside, catfishing, and how parents can protect their kids. With us is Titania Jordan, chief parent officer at Bark, which is an online platform that helps keep kids safe online. First of all, very quickly explain uh, what catfishing is, and then uh, you can go right into uh, what a parent could do to make sure their kids don't fall for this. Sure. Yeah, this is a, a really scary story, but I'm glad you're highlighting it. Catfishing is the act of creating a false identity and then interacting with somebody for a specific purpose, usually to lure them into some sort of relationship. It can include mild flirting all the way to years-long partnerships. Um, now, the catch is that these people have never and will never meet in real life, despite the fact that they can spend hours a day communicating with someone. And the dangers, you know, this, you know, there, there's a whole show about this on MTV a few years ago, which is where uh, this phenomenon got its moniker. Um, but the, the dangers uh, are that you can, well, as you see from the story, uh, can end up in murder. Um, it can also uh, affect children deeply. Um, this is one way that predators tend to groom children. And also just gain, uh, personal, uh, info, um, and, and really take advantage and even cyberbully in some cases. Well, Jenna, it, it's somewhat sad, but true. As you mentioned, we are highlighting this story today because it's made news, uh, because of the three deaths that were involved here. Uh, it's been a yeah. breaking story all morning. You know, Oftentimes it takes something like this to bring a story up uh, and get people talking about it. But just how prevalent is catfishing, as they call it, these days? That's a good question. We don't have concrete data in terms of how frequently catfishing occurs. We do know it happens enough that uh, there is a way to report on all the major platforms that, you know, if somebody is impersonating you or somebody else, you can report it. And they wouldn't have built that feature if it wasn't happening enough. Um, we also know that when it comes to online enticement, that is unfortunately on the rise. In fact, NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, reported a 97.5% increase in online enticement reports just over the course of 2020. So, 
catfishing specifically is just one tactic used to harm others online. And unfortunately, those harms are on the rise. And very quickly, um, uh, you touched on some of the laws against, you know, you have laws against fraud and, and using online communications to uh, commit fraud. Uh, but uh, as, so far as I know, it's not against the law for someone to just create this persona and pretend to be that person and try to engage in conversations and online relationships with others, be they kids or whoever. Uh, do laws need to be strengthened? And if so, which which laws? So great question. I can't speak to the latter um, just because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but as a mom and as the chief parent officer at Bark Technologies, what I can speak to is the the weakness of existing laws in general to protect children specifically. We have got to do better as a society to help protect these kids, especially because they're getting devices and the rate at which technology progresses is just not as fast as the rate at which the law is meant to protect them progress. As a parent, what's the big takeaway for them in protecting their children? The big takeaway is that conversations matter. You've got to talk with your children about the most, in some cases, random and tricky issues that they might encounter when they are online. And that goes to to basic digital citizenship. You know, don't share personal information with somebody. If you have never met them in real life, uh, chances are you know nothing about them despite what they've told you. Um, if anybody asks you for a photo of yourself or any PII, that's personally identifiable information, come tell mom and dad. You will not be in trouble. You didn't do anything wrong, but that's something that we need to know about. All right. Titania Jordan, she's Chief Parent Officer at Bark. Titania, thank you. Uh, Chief uh, Parent Officer at Bark, that's an online platform that helps keep kids safe online. Right now, though, we would like to venture to guess that almost everybody you know has had COVID at some point. A new study from Harvard finds about 94% of people in the U.S. have had it at least once. Chris Eden's over here. I'm part of the 6%. That yes, <laughs> should buy a lottery <laughs> ticket. Uh, the big reason being the highly contagious Omicron variant. That's the main reason why. And this also means there are some people out there who've never had it, like Chris Eden's. Like and how do they manage to avoid COVID? And, and will that avoidance last? Dr. Joseph Castaldo is an infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So what is this? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about some people that are possibly naturally immune to COVID and that's why they haven't had it? Or are they just lucky that they haven't been exposed in the right way to it? A great question. I think it's just pure luck. It's kind of like uh, you go to play the lottery. You know you're going to lose, but somebody has to win it. Yes. Anyway, this is where we are now. You know, we have uh, much more transmissible variants. We're still dealing with Omicron, but it is very contagious. It's very transmissible. Now, the study you just referenced, please keep in mind, it is a preprint. It's not yet been published or peer-reviewed, and it's really based on modeling. And really, any type of study, you always say you can get, you can give up to 5% or take away 5%. But really, I think where we are now in the pandemic with more variants and subvariants being transmissible, it's very unlikely that anybody has not had COVID. And remember, it's kind of back to the beginning, too. There are people who have had COVID but have had no symptoms at all. They've had asymptomatic infection. So there are still people out there who indeed don't ever recall having a positive test but may 
indeed have had a positive PCR. Well, doctor, I, I again, I have not had COVID. Um, I, I'm very careful. I have a friend who, because of many medical issues, cannot get vaccinated. It's a very close friend. And so, you know, we get together for dinner. We'll sit outside. Uh, we do everything very carefully. So when, when you say pure luck, I guess I, I question that a little bit and that there are many of us who still continue to mask up at times, double masking, very careful. Is that not part of the reason some people are not catching COVID? Uh, yes, that is pro- that is contributing to it. Yes, but however, again, uh, like I said, we are dealing with much tra- more transmissible variants. So, a- unless you're going to live in a mountain or in a bubble, everybody has a date with this virus, and and your safest way to have a first date is to have your immune system uh, be introduced to the spike protein by getting a vaccine. So you're best protected from having a severe outcome resulting in hospitalization death. I do want to pivot to talk about vaccines a little bit because uh, previously there may have been people for whatever reason uh, cannot get an mRNA vaccine, but now with availability of the Novavax vaccine, which is a more traditional vaccine, that is another option that's available for people in our country. All right. I want to go back to something that you touched on people who uh, have probably had COVID and never knew it because they never had the symptoms. Uh, Is that a possibility in my friend Chris Eden's case here that maybe he has had it and just never had symptoms? But you uh, but Chris, you Mm -hmm. test regularly Mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. So no test has ever come back positive. Exactly. Okay, so the test would show positive if he's had it, even though he never had symptoms. Right. Uh, that is correct. Now, there are there are antibody tests that you can get done. This is really getting in the weeds. There are antibodies that you can get done. One antibody is to the spike protein. That does not differentiate between infection or the vaccine because the vaccine will also give you antibodies to spike protein. There's another type of antibody to the nuclear protein that you can measure that if you have a positive test to that, that that's, pure, that's proof that you have had COVID at some time. And again, uh, like you commented on before, uh, in my circle of friends here in Ohio, I don't know anybody, including myself, who have not had COVID. Well, and I, I take it it's because so many people are back uh, unmasked, going to concerts, going to sporting events, uh, dining indoors as well, holiday get-togethers. For those who are, are being care, I guess what I'm getting at is if everybody continued to be masked and protecting themselves the way we were before, perhaps the number wouldn't be at 94%. That is correct. And uh, as you referenced before, we all have COVID fatigue. Nobody is doing that anymore, uh, at least in, in my circle that I'm seeing here in Columbus, Ohio. And we see that happening also, too, with the fact that RSV rates and flu cases are way up now. And that's just a reflection of where we are now with uh, us having COVID fatigue and really not living the same way we did uh, over the last two years. All right. Dr. Gastaldo, thank you again. That's Dr. Joseph Gastaldo, infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. Coming up, a volcano that has been quiet for nearly 40 years is now making a lot of noise. The gods are angry. And Iran state media calling for the U.S. to be kicked out of the World Cup will tell you why. Right now, though, Russia has been targeting Ukraine's electric grid, which has led to power outages across much of the country. Hospitals are being impacted in a big way as they've had their power cut off. Scheduled operations postponed. Paramedics having to use flashlights at times to examine patients in very dark apartments. With us now is Dr. Roman Fischuk, who works at a hospital in western Ukraine. Doctor, thank you for joining us. First of all, how serious is this situation in Ukraine right now from what you're seeing and how bad might it still get? 
Hi, uh, thank you for having me tonight. Uh, well, it's uh, half to midnight in in Ivano-Frankivsk, where I'm based, and it's more than 1,000 miles from the front line. And here I am at a gas station looking for a signal to talk to you because there is no electricity at my home. I don't have any cellular connection, no internet. So uh, it's quite challenging. Uh, fortunately, most of the uh, medical facilities uh, are equipped with backup electricity supply. And in case that fails, then uh, a lot of hospitals have generators. But again, we don't have enough of them to cover all of the uh, to, to provide all of the medical services we can. And as you mentioned before, uh, planned surgeries are being rescheduled. Patients are asked to wait. And if, if, it's, if the case is not urgent, then uh, patients uh, try to postpone it as far as they can. And uh, to be honest, uh, some people are quite afraid to come to the hospitals because Russia is terrorizing Ukraine and targeting medical facilities on purpose. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the cost of this, and by that I mean, uh, are doctors losing patients due to uh, Russia's attacks cutting out power and infrastructure? Well, some, a lot of people, as you know, moved uh, um, from Ukraine to other countries, but uh, a lot of people returned. Uh, so it's, uh, I wouldn't say that pe- that we are losing patients because of uh, migration inside of the country. We do have a lot of patients, and uh, especially with the winter season coming, uh, a lot of colds, a lot of uh, traumas. Uh, so uh, we don't see that there are less patients than before. Do well, we- I, I wasn't. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, I wasn't referring to. Uh, I know that uh, some people are trying to get out of uh, the dangerous areas, but well, do you have patients that uh, are dying because they can't get treatment due to the these attacks? Uh, well, there are people who cannot access healthcare, but this is not happening in the areas where you don't have the actual battlefield. But places uh, in the east, in the south, uh, where people are immobile, you know, they have ulcers or they have cancer, uh, they are really suffering. And some of them may, may die because of uh, inaccessible healthcare. How concerned are you that circumstances are going to get much worse with the coming winter months? Uh, I mean, everyone is concerned, especially this week, because uh, Russia uh, gathered about 20 strategic bombers uh, that are ready to bomb Ukraine pretty much tomorrow. And that's what the forecast is. They have a a huge ship with the cruise missiles in the Black Sea, and uh, we are expecting a huge massive attack tomorrow again. So people are are very concerned and but the, uh, we do whatever we can we uh, get the supply of water of food and uh, uh, the state has initiated points of invincibility that those are the points pretty much tense where you can get access to uh, into to internet where you can charge your mobile devices where you can get warm drinks where you can uh, just uh, get, come to a warm place and when it comes to checking out patients, you know, you're using flashlights and things like that, and you're depending on your smarts and your intelligence to figure out new ways of taking care of things. How are doctors uh, handling that? Are, are they showing themselves to be very capable in uh, finding workarounds? Uh, I think this comes from, the, from, from, from our experience in the past. Healthcare in Ukraine was always underfinanced, and the doctors had to be really uh, smart about equipment we use, about uh, you know, things we do about the procedures. So you can see both military are using uh, weapons and arms that are provided by, by our international partners in different smart ways. The same with doctors. We are trying to figure out new ways, smart ways to use equipment, instruments, and whatever we can do to provide services to the patients. But again, it, it's 
this is not how it should be done. Dr. Fischuk, before we let you go, how are you and your, your, your colleagues and your family holding up through all this? Uh, I mean, we have strong belief we will win this war, but it just we would we are thankful for all the support uh, our allies are providing. But we need more because if we want to finish this this war as soon as possible, we need more arms, more weapons, and more support to the people who are suffering because of the winter coming and because of the consequences that uh, this can bring. Well, stay safe. Uh, our thoughts are with you. Uh, and again, thanks for joining us. That's Dr. Roman Fischuk. He works at a hospital in western Ukraine. And because of the power situation there, he's actually had to go to a, a gas station to find uh, an area where he could actually get a cell signal to, to speak with us. Volcano scientists have been waiting for a while. Now the moment is finally here. Mauna Loa on Hawaii's Big Island is erupting, erupting for the first time since 1984. It started last night. Ash and other debris have been falling in the area. So far, nearby communities are safe from the lava. With us to talk about it is Wendy Stovall, volcanologist with the USGS Volcano Hazards Program. She was on the Big Island for the 2018 Kilauea eruption, which is nearby Mauna Loa. Thank you for joining us. So for those of us who haven't lived around a volcano, when it's erupting and our first thought is what god is angry and who should we throw in to sacrifice to the gods to stop it what <laughs> what is it what does it smell like is there a smell associated with uh, all the stuff that's falling down out of the sky and then what should we watch out for falling down out of the sky when a volcano blows its top like this um well fortunately in hawaii the volcanoes don't really rain things down from the sky very often um the one thing that people should be concerned about is sulfur dioxide gas as far as stuff in the air. Uh, and that does have kind of a weird smell depending on where where you are relative to where the eruption is. Um, the smell is, is different because the gas species itself changes as it interacts with the atmosphere and moves downwind. Um, but really the primary concern is um, that that VOG, it's called VOG, which is volcanic smog that's created from the sulfur dioxide gas. Um, the other primary hazard is lava flows, and presently the lava flows that are erupting from Mauna Loa are not threatening any communities, and they're really very high in elevation on um, close to the summit of the volcano. So they're not uh, not posing any big threats, uh, and no should be sacrificed for sure. Is there a certain <laughs> point where the, things might turn, like turn on a dime, where all of a sudden, okay, no big threat right now, but a lookout? Uh, well, Mauna Loa is rather predictable, which is a good thing. Um, the volcano typically erupts from the summit, which we saw happen. Then typically the eruptions move into one of the two rift zones. And the eruption is now in the northeast rift zone, and that is a good thing because the slopes on that northeast side of the volcano are very gentle, which means that it just takes a longer time for lava flows to go down the slopes of the volcano. Uh, and Mauna Loa is the biggest volcano on our entire planet. It's actually the largest mountain on the entire planet if you measure it from its base below the sea level to its summit. So uh, you can imagine those slopes are really big and really long. Um, most of the inhabitants live 
uh, at the lower elevations, and it will take a very long time for any of the lava flows to reach any civilization. Yeah, you know, volcanic eruptions can be very different. Uh, you know, we've seen in popular culture, you know, the big mountain blowing its top and fire going up into the sky. And then other volcanic eruptions are more kind of a slow-moving kind of a thing where lava begins flowing out and uh, running down the side of the mountain. So what you're saying in this is it's not uh, n- not that much of an explosive event so much as it is uh, an outpouring of gas and you've got the lava flows. Uh, how quickly does uh, lava, like, for example, from this volcano, uh, take to cool? down as it starts to roll down the sides of the mountain? Well, within uh, within hours, as long as it's not like an open channel of lava flowing, one could walk on top of, of lava flows. Um, it's not necessarily something that you would want to do, uh, but currently these flows are channelized, uh, which means just that there are like levees that have built up along the sides. Um, and the levees are built of lava that just kind of spills out of the channel. And then there's just a a central point or a central flow of more of the red hot lava that you could that you would imagine moving down through the middle of the channel um and that is uh cooling at the front um creating like black rock along the edge of the front of the flows just because it's not uh it's really the faster part of the channel that is that red glow uh, and uh, Chris uh, touched on this briefly a second ago. There's no danger of this volcanic eruption being like, say, Mount Vesuvius in ancient history and uh, blowing up and, and burying whole towns, right? No danger no. of that. No danger of that at all. Absolutely not. Knock no. on wood. No. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> and from from what you're hearing, how is, how would this one compare to what you went through on the Big Island with the uh, 2018 Kilauea eruption? Yeah, I mean, in in 2018, it was a very different scenario because the eruptions started in people's backyards. Uh, And and here, the eruptions started at 14,000 feet in elevation very, very far away from where anyone lives. And so there was more of an unexpected nature um, and a surprise and an immediate um, trauma and coping of the community where the eruption was occurring in 2018. Uh, Fortunately, the Mauna Loa eruption provides plenty of forewarning for any communities that might be impacted in the future. Um, We will be able to forecast lava flow trajectories as as the flows progress through time. Um, So if the eruption continues for more than a couple of weeks, then we might start seeing uh, some impacts to communities, but we would be able to give them ample forewarning before anything would uh, encroach in their backyards. Okay. Wendy, thank you. And again, that's Wendy Stovall. She's a volcanologist with the uh, USGS Volcano Hazards Program. Politics are creeping into the World Cup and are now surrounding tomorrow's big match between the U.S. and Iran. U.S. Soccer Federation changed Iran's flag on its social media platforms to show support for protesters in Iran. Now that upset Iran as state media there called the United States to be kicked out, kicked out of the World Cup. Tensions have been raised and uh, that for a match that will decide which of these two countries, U.S. or Iran, will advance to the next round. There's an awful lot on the line when these two teams meet. Kevin Baxter is with us again. He's the L.A. Times soccer reporter in Qatar right now covering the U.S. team. Kevin, uh, we're getting a lot of uh, reporting on this here. It's a big deal here in the United States, not just the game and the fact that we must win to move on, but the, this controversy that has erupted. Uh, what's the feeling on the ground? Paint us a picture of what's happening there in Qatar. 
Well, there was a really wild press conference today. Uh, every, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, every World Cup game the day before the, the game, there was a media conference with the coaches and captains of the two teams. And this one was wild. The, the Iranian reporters um, badgered Greg Berhalter, the U.S. coach, and Tyler Adams, U.S. captain, with questions about everything from U.S. immigration policy to how to pronounce Iran. They, they, uh, they went after Tyler Adams for not being able to pronounce the name of their country correctly. They asked Greg Berhalter why there were U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf. And uh, they asked about U.S. Uh, uh, racism in the U.S., the inflation. They asked about everything but soccer. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's obvious that they that, that they take the slight with the with the flag seriously. Uh, and, uh, again, it was just a wild scene. Somebody from U.S. soccer said they've been involved in these things for 25 years and have never seen anything like it. What are the chances that uh, the U.S. soccer team might get kicked out of the World Cup due to this? No, absolutely no chance. The, the, that was grandstanding by the Iranians, mainly because uh, just a few weeks ago, activists in Iran who are participating, you know, there was there have been uh, two months of protest, bloody protest in Iran. Uh, 18,000 people arrested, over 440 people killed protesting for women's rights. And, and that's what the U.S. Uh, was trying to call attention to. Um, it, it backfired, obviously. But uh, there were activists in Iran calling for Iran to be kicked out of the World Cup just a couple of weeks ago. They wanted them to be replaced with Ukraine. They said Iran was a corrupt regime and shouldn't be participating in international sports. Uh, that's what the Iranians were, were, were reacting to. It was like, hey, if if people want us kicked out, and remember, if the U.S. had nothing to do with that campaign, if the U.S. Uh, or people want us kicked out, we now want the U.S. kicked out. There was absolutely no seriousness to that demand at all. What are you hearing from U.S. officials when it comes to the issue of altering the Iranian flag? Well, what happened was, and the U.S. has not backed off from this. They have not uh, you know, tried to point fingers or anything. Basically, it was a social media person who um, they had been put up some things on social media that, that show the team standings, for example, in the group, U.S., Wales, England, and uh, Iran. And they put their flags next to the country. And then as they hyped the game, they, they, they put up a social media post saying the time of the game, where the game's going to be played, and they put the flags of the two teams. Uh, on Saturday, uh, for the first time, they altered the Iranian flag and they took out the Islamic Republic sign of uh, emblem that's in the middle of the flag. They only posted a couple of things on social media uh, before they, they reverted and went back to the old flag, the correct flag with the Islamic Republic logo. Um, but, but it was up there long enough for the Iranians to notice it and, and call attention to it. U.S. soccer said that they had several internal uh, conversations about that, and they decided to take it down. Greg Berhalter, the U.S. coach at the press conference today, said the team and the coaching staff knew nothing about it, but he apologized for it anyways. And said, you know, it was the wrong thing to do, and we're sorry if we hurt anybody. But the, the intention of U.S. soccer, they say, was to was to to shed light on the fact that there are people in Iran, thousands, millions of people protesting for women's rights. They wanted to call attention to that. Uh, U.S. soccer backed off on that a lot today, uh, sort of avoided the question and said, you know, we're here to talk about soccer. Uh, notwithstanding that many countries around the world are are uh, supporting the protesters in Iran right now, and, and they, they have good reason, but is this controversy another black eye for World Cup soccer and for FIFA? Because, first of all, this all started uh, with the games being held in Qatar and a lot of questions about why why that nation with the human rights abuses they have there, and then questions about uh, human rights violations for some of the workers who were working on all these stadiums that had to be built. Uh, in Qatar. Is this another black eye and will this hurt uh, FIFA and World Cup soccer in the long run? 
Not, not really. This is an independent thing that has to do with Iran and a little bit with the United States. Uh, really doesn't have to do with FIFA or the World Cup. We've seen, you know, we've seen a, a protest like the German, the German team put their uh, during their team picture. All the players put their hands over their mouth, saying that that FIFA is trying to censor them by not allowing them to speak publicly about the human rights violations in Qatar. Uh, seven European teams wanted to wear armbands in support of of uh, LBGTQ rights and FIFA banned them from doing that. That's FIFA sort of putting its political agenda and the political agenda of the Qataris, uh, uh, you know, on the front and center in the World Cup. This thing with Iran is is a, a is an independent thing between Iran and perhaps the United States. We saw something earlier with Serbia too, and the Serbian team in their locker room had a flag up that uh, made uh, uh, mention of Kosovo, which is an independent country that seceded from from Serbia, uh, and talking about how uh, there is no surrender. Kosovo is part of Serbia. Uh, you know that that was an issue for a couple of days, but again. That's an internal political issue back in those countries. It just happened to surface at the World Cup. Um, But I don't think it's a FIFA issue or a World Cup issue. All right. Kevin, thank you so much for your perspective. Again, that's Kevin Baxter of the L.A. Times, their soccer reporter, joining us from Qatar right now, covering uh, the U.S. team, which is facing that big, big game. A lot of controversy around that game tomorrow against Iran. The winner advances to the next round. That'll do it for KNX In-Depth today. Again, we're back to our one-hour edition. For Rob, I'm Chris. We're back again with you tomorrow.